Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Our guest this week is one of the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music, Clive Davis. In an unparalleled career that has now spanned over a remarkable seven decades, Clive's influence behind the music has shaped much of what the world has been listening to ever since. Starting at Columbia Records in 1965, Clive was instrumental in steering that storied pop label headfirst into the burgeoning genre of rock and roll. His early signings there, including Janis Joplin, Santana, Blood, Sweat and Tears, and Bruce Springsteen, would transform not only Columbia, but also the entire world of contemporary music. In 1974, Clive started his own label, Arista Records, and continued his masterful run with artists and songs that topped the charts. Artists like Barry Manilow, Aretha Franklin, Dionne Warwick, Patti Smith, The Grateful Dead, and Whitney Houston. In the year 2000, he started J Records and later became CEO and president of RCA. Clive is currently the chief creative officer of Sony Music Entertainment and is still going strong, heading into his 90th birthday this year. Clive has won five Grammy Awards as a producer. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in the year 2000 and has the Grammy Museum Theater named after him in his honor. This conversation was recorded via Zoom in July of 2020, celebrating the release on Netflix of the acclaimed documentary adaptation of Clive's best-selling memoir, The Soundtrack of My Life. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Our guest today, Clive Davis, is currently the chief creative officer of Sony Music Entertainment in a legendary career spanning over 50 years and still going strong. Clive has also served as chair and CEO of RCA Music Group, founder and CEO of J Records, chair and CEO of BMG North America, president of Columbia Records, and founder and president of Arista Records. Will you please welcome the legendary Clive Davis? Okay, I'm welcomed. Thank you, Clive. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Pete. You've written your best-selling book, The Soundtrack of My Life, which has been turned into an acclaimed documentary film, which is now also a big hit on Netflix. So congratulations on that. Well, thanks so much. I mean... I've really been overwhelmed, especially for some reason in the last three months, the documentary on Netflix has gone viral and the number of emails are just voluminous. So I'm hearing from so many people, so gratifying. 
Well, I would recommend highly to anyone who is tuning in today who has not watched the documentary to watch it, and for anyone who wants to dig even deeper to read Clive's amazing book, The Soundtrack of My Life. Clive, what's the one thing you've gotten feedback on from either the book or the film that was unexpected? I think it really is the detail. First of all, I had nothing to do with the creativity as far as the documentary is concerned. And so I didn't even know until the end as to which artists they've gone to to interview. And we know on the side of the table of the executive how special it might be if you are there at the beginning of a career, whether it's of a brand new artist or whether, at least in my case, those established artists that were no longer hitting big were being written off and sort of, you're saying, this timeless artist for me was Dion Warwick and Aretha, Rod Stewart with a new upbeat for the Great American Songbook. So that to see all these artists on the documentary, going back to Simon and Garfunkel, uh, going back to Carlos Santana, a number of the responses were really picking up on one thing. And Pete, you and I later in life for me, beginning for you, if you will, <laughs> uh, or the early part of your career, when we worked together on Supernatural of Santana. But I learned, and is being picked up on, for Carlos in the documentary, to say that the band had wanted to go with Atlantic Records and that he felt a very special connection for me. Now, let's go back. This was so early in my career. I had just signed my first artist, Joplin, maybe a year, year and a half before. And Bill Graham had called me and I flew out to San Francisco to see Santana. And Carlos said, our early meeting, he felt that connection. And he just played badly for Ahmed uh, when Ahmed <laughs> Him. And you see him lackadaisic, you know, not, and the band members looking at him as to what's wrong. And then you see him playing for me, well, where he's full of electricity and fire. I mean, I'm reacting to your question as to what I'm hearing most and what was unexpected for the detail that I'm so gratified, and it was so special for me to learn and see Carlos playing uh, with Santana audition for me. Also, they did pick up, and I'm not saying it because this is the Warner Group, this is Atlantic, but another scene, if you will, is Ahmed presenting a New York Grammy to me, and where he said that the big success, the huge success with Supernatural, where it's now maybe the 10th, 11th, or 12th best-selling album worldwide. And Ahmed said, when you realize that Carlos was then over 50, 
didn't sing a note. And that the album, you know, has taken off into the stratosphere of worldwide sales, 25 years or more, really much more. 30. Yeah, 30 years after I had originally signed him. You know, picking up on that detail uh, has been unexpected and very gratifying. Amazing. And the fact that anyone on Netflix now can watch and learn so much, not only about your life, but about the history of music, history of contemporary music, because they're so intertwined. What is the first thing you would say to them about making one's life work, one's life's work in the music industry? Well, I'm happy to say, you know, when I've had two of the students, I've been down to school at NYU because when I was growing up, there was no respect for contemporary music. It was all if you wanted to study music, you know, it was classical music or jazz. Rock was thought of as being ephemeral. Contemporary music uh, was to a limited group, okay? To me, I lost my parents when I was a teenager. I had no money. I had 4,000 to my name. I was a freshman, just graduated my freshman class at NYU. And through the beneficence of others, okay, I got scholarships to go to through college and law school. So in giving back, I have established a school to study contemporary music because all of you all over the world, you know that contemporary music has been so powerful, reaching behind the Iron Curtain in tough times. And it's such a worldwide cultural phenomenon. Today, the digital world is upon us where we were really threatened a few years ago as to how it would affect music, whether music is here to stay. I just want to reaffirm that obviously with streaming, what it's meant to the worldwide interest in music, what it's meant to the history and the current state of the record industry being healthy, yeah, we've got to be vigilant. I love everything about what happened with the hip-hop revolution. But with hip-hop dominating so strongly, we've really got to be careful as to where the next Springsteen, where the next Dylan, where the next great artist, where the great singers. Obviously, I'm talking personally, you know, uh, with Whitney and Aretha and Dion, where will they be? Where will they be heard so that those in A&R and hopefully those in the rest and extensions of music will not prevent us from having artists, you know, probably, I would say on a professional level, among the biggest thrills are today to see artists that I discovered 50 years ago, 40, 30, still headlining in normal times, obviously. And we've really all got to make sure 
that a broader range of music is allowed to breathe because there's no way that one should just adhere to formula and only uh, sign one type of artist or only get played or be available for streaming. Innovation is so much of a part of what we do. And if we don't allow those voices to be heard, they may never get heard. So I agree with you on that. There's, there's actually a great quote, Clive, from an article about you in Rolling Stone magazine that I refer to often. It says, for a critic, a song should be a hit because it's beautiful. For Clive Davis, a song is beautiful because it's a hit. Do you agree with that? Look, over the years... And I'm sure any student of the record business will know there are very few rarefied albums that succeed in reaching millions around the world as a concept album. You know, you all know them so that those that succeed without having hit singles. So that obviously we're in a business. Yes, we love it. Yes, it's our passion. Yes, we're blessed that we can't wait to get to work wherever you're going to work these days and deal with music. But there's no question that critics could make fun of it, but every artist, let me just tell you, because Pete, you're emphasizing newcomers. I grew up in the anti-material era where you couldn't even look like you were that post-Monterey pop. We're talking late 60s and thereafter where artists couldn't look mercenary, couldn't look commercial. I don't care who the artist is. I don't care how cerebral they might be. Every artist wants their album to sell to as great a number of people as possible. I'm not saying it involves compromise, and I don't say it means doing anything unnatural and not organically. So what I'm getting to is, yes, the hit single is necessary, almost 95 to 100%, and getting your album to the large audience that every artist from me, whether it was Joplin, whether it was Dylan, whether it was Springsteen, no sellout. But we want the album, obviously, to be successful. So I would say that the input, since for artists that write their own material, uh, it's their creativity, should never be bastardized. But where we get in is making sure we pick the right single, making sure it's in the best form in order to, whether it was streaming or, or radio or what have you. Yes, you can have favorite album cuts of artists, but usually without feeling tacky or anything other than pure, most of the great copyrights that we're talking about, and of course our lives with the Beatles, Dylan, those cuts that have broken through, 
and become hit singles. Perhaps it's long-winded, but there's no question, Pete, that it is a little more beautiful when a great song breaks through and becomes a hit. Absolutely. A hit is not a dirty word. In my opinion, Clive, and I'm not just saying this because we're here together, but in my opinion, you are the greatest A&R man of the past 50 years. And I say that not because you hired me a few times and not because <laughs> you, you signed who you signed. But the reason, in my opinion, that you are the greatest A&R man of the past 50 years is because that no one has ever balanced the A and the R as equally as you did and you do. While most A&R people have a tendency to gravitate towards the shiny buzz of a new artist signing, you always understood how important the song was as an equal attachment to that artist. And I think that really you know, makes you stand out among even the most legendary of all your peers. I'm grateful and appreciative of your kind words and, and thank you for them. You know, just to continue on that, obviously Clive's accolades are legendary as a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, a four-time Grammy Award winner as a producer, as well as a Grammy Trustees Award winner, the President's Merit Award winner. The Clive Davis Theater at the Grammy Museum is named after you, Clive, as is your school that you mentioned, the Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music inside the Tisch School of the Arts at NYU. I'm now 30 years into my own career as an A&R person, and I can honestly say that I learned more working for you in the 11 years on and off that we worked together than I did in any time leading up to that. And I also look out into the industry and one thing that isn't talked about a lot, Clive, is the executives who you groomed and mentored and the roles they play now as leaders in the industry. It's really a knack you've had that doesn't get as much attention as everything else. And honestly, there's not a day that goes by where I don't use a tool that I learned from you in the time that we worked together. And across the Warner Music Group, there are a ton of alums from Arista or Jay or RCA who are all tuning in today, Rainey Hancock, Suzanne Savage, Andrew Berkowitz, a bunch of your old friends. But I definitely wanted to bring that up because that's something that doesn't get talked about a lot. You know something? I'm proud of the fact of how many executives I worked with who really became heads of various companies through our industry. I look with pride at that. No one exists in a vacuum. And so as recently as last week, in coming across a song that Whitney recorded a number of years ago, title of You'll Never Stand Alone. And we're listening to uh, remixed, you know, Higher Love was just released this past year. So as I get ready to co-produce the biopic on Whitney's life with Anthony McCartan, Anthony wrote Bohemian Rhapsody, Anthony wrote The Two Popes this past year. He's also written The Darkest Hour, the Churchill great movie, and The Theory of Everything. 
I wanted to make sure that Whitney, that her life is fully told, never to whitewash it, never to soft pedal it, to digress a second, the demons and the hurdles she had to come through, but also to show the full picture of why she was beloved. She was not beloved when she was on drugs and doing uh, the Diane Sawyer show and not, not being herself. And all her adult life when she was herself and with the glory of her genius voice, this film will show everything about Whitney with all of the flowering of her talent as well as the demons that befell her. I mentioned that, but clearly along the way with each of these artists, I always had a team of executives who were there and consulting not just a and is the point I'm making, but in saying to Keith and Keith agreeing at A&R in RCA, I said, well, we've got to make sure that in bringing this Whitney, that you'll never stand alone record and modernizing the production that Babyface did, that the artistry, her voice, and that everything is there in a way so that you got to bring in promotion. I'm very proud of the promotion and marketing teams at the various labels. They were so much a part of knowing, you know, Pete went with the Santana comeback or with the Rod Stewart five volumes of the Great American Songbook. There was so much there so that in seeing Tom Corson and seeing others head labels and to know that they were such a part of the team. I'm going to say today, maybe my book says it. I don't know if my documentary says it, but the proudest moment I ever had, have had in my career, was when I started J Records. It was never a case of BMG thinking I was either too old, had peaked. Obviously, none of that was true. It was the year of Whitney's My Love Is Your Love album. It was the year of Supernatural. At the peak of my career, they didn't like the amount of money that I was earning with a share of the profit. So obviously they believed in me and they gave our team $150 million to start J Records, almost four times more than what started Interscope. And they gave me the right to pick five platinum plus artists. And they gave me the right to pick five artists who had never come with an album book or recording it, which enabled me to get Alicia Keys, who was just in the studio. But the reason for the pride, obviously at the artist level, it's just like baseball tickets. The artists had to agree to come to a brand new label. And the most important was that there was no limit on the number of executives. 
that could move from Ariston to Jay. And the only restriction was that I could not offer the executive any more money than what they were earning. And they could, of course, tear up the contract and offer, I know in the case of Charles Goldstock, more than double what he was earning. And so I made a list and we put out offers to the 18 top people of Arista, presidents, the executive vice presidents, A&R staff, promotion, marketing, top lawyer. So my proudest moment is that all 18, with families, obviously economics paramount in their mind as the wage earner in their family, all 18 came. And overnight, Jay Records, with Alicia Keys, and attracting Luther and Buster Rhymes and the executives, and so many of them now have the title of president or executive vice president. It's very special to me because although I'm hands-on, I have great respect for teamwork. I have great respect for the years, not only of A&R, but to get the practical input from those that have to work a record. Similarly, Clive, to your ability to identify great creatives and great employees, you've also identified great songwriters and and record producers and gave them the opportunity to have their own labels under your guidance, whether it was Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff with Philadelphia International at Columbia Mm -hmm. or Sean Diddy Combs with Bad Boy through Arista, L.A. Reid and Babyface with LaFace through Arista. How did you know that these songwriters and producers could also be great label heads and help define culture with their signings and releases? Pete, that's a very, very good question. I don't think there's been an analysis of that because there's a real big difference between even writing or producing it and discovering talent. And so that I've seen, and we're not going to go into names, (laughs) that every producer at the height of his or her career, is pursued for a label deal. And that always, to me, was a big mistake because the ability of A&R to discover talent is very different from the ability to write and produce hit records. I'm very proud of the fact that the label deals that I make, all made, okay, all of which involved investment of millions of dollars. To get into R&B when I was at Columbia, it was not going to be A&R people. We had no, you know, Aretha was there. They didn't know what to do, A&R, at that time to sign her. They didn't know what to do with her. It was Jerry Wexler, obviously, who helped make her work with her, collaborate with her to be the queen of soul. And so what I'm saying is, yes, in working closely with 
a major number of producers who had hit records, I would get into, before I invested any money, to see what kind of talent they would bring me, to see what kind of talent they were recommending I sign, what they looked like, what they sounded like, whether they were artists that wrote, didn't write, to appraise that material. It's a totally different criteria. And what's never written about is the hundreds of millions of dollars that have been invested and lost because label deals were offered to writers or producers that had hit records and had provided hit songs one way or another to great artists but could not discover artists from the beginning. And so whether it was Gamble and Huff with the OJs, Teddy Pendergrass, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, Billy Paul, me and Mr. Jones, that got Columbia and R&B. And I learned, and that's when I signed Earth, Wind and Fire. And then when R&B music was changing, seeing all the producers, how many hits they had in coming out of them called R&B, but seeing what talent they were believing in. There was a big difference. I would go to these producers for hit songs, for Whitney, for Aretha, Dion, etc. But when I saw what artists they believed could be stars, it was a totally different picture. So it was only L.A. and Babyface that at that time impressed me coming out of I'm Your Baby Tonight album with Whitney that, yes, I would finance LaFace Records. And, of course, they, in coming up with Pink and coming up with Usher uh, and coming up with Outkast and the artists that clearly uh, became huge stars. And then, you know, Puffy now is obviously a household name. But when I met with him, when he, I think, was 23 years old, and I knew that between the artists I had, Aretha, Dion, Whitney, was one kind of music. LaFace, with Outkast, Usher, with blue-collar R&B at its height. But in sensing the hip-hop revolution, both L.A. and I agreed we could use someone really attuned to the street. You got to know what you can do yourself, and you got to know what you got to look to other people. And so when I met with Puffy, and he articulated that hip-hop should be part of top 40 mainstream, and that the business would change in the future. He was persuasive, articulate, and I said, what have you got by way of music to illustrate that point? And he played me Craig Mack's Flavor in Your Ear, and he played me the then unknown artist that he felt and believed in so strongly, and he played me four or five cuts from Notorious B.I.G., and I said, okay, 
you proved your point. And that's the way I introduced them to the weekly, what we called singles meetings, to all the executives that were there as someone that would help lead us to the street and share in the hip-hop forthcoming revolution. So, yes, you've got to be careful with your label deals because they all involve financing from scratch many millions of dollars. You could be the best hit maker. You can be associated with the biggest artists, but it's a different kind of talent than discovering artists at the beginning, which A&R men that could not do what they do could do better and have an independent career in that connection. There's a great quote from the book, Clive, where you say at its best, a label deal should help you accomplish something that you couldn't do on your own. And it's really, you know, as challenging as finding the right label deal partner as it is finding a brand new star artist. But when you think about the artists that you mentioned, you know, even Tony Braxton and and TLC and, and some of the other artists, Usher, that were brought into Arista by LaFace, but even you with, with Tony Braxton found Unbreak My Heart for her. So there was still a synergy going on between the A and the R, which is to their benefit and to your benefit as well. Well, let me say that in talking A and R and the meaning of it. When I was at Columbia and I had no idea that I would have a natural unexplored gift of ears. And every artist that I signed at Columbia was a rock artist. That's what got me into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They all wrote their own material. And you were looking at that fertile, new, post-Monterey electrification of the guitar, you know, in signing Joplin, the Electric Flag, Blood, Sweat and Tears, Chicago, Santana, Bob Skaggs and the like, Earth, Wind, and Fire. And the book goes into it. The documentary certainly goes into it. No one's life is up, up, up. Let me talk to the unknown faces that are out there that are part of the Warner's group because Peter's been very generous with his praise. And I've been very fortunate in to have had if you will, the number of successes that I've had. But I was then fired as head of Columbia Records. We're now going back to the year 73. I had taken the company from number three to number one, ahead of Capital and RCA. All of what you've heard, everything was hitting. R&B, we had gotten into rock. Of course, we were preeminent in Blood, Sweat, and Tears, multi-platinum, Simon and Garfunkel, multi-platinum. And then an employee of Columbia who was stealing from the company claimed that payola was rampant in the record business, hinted strongly that there was payola at Columbia and There was a new president in 37 years old of CBS, 
I knew him for a few months. He was not part of the record business. And he was told by the lawyers, we are principally a government-licensed CBS broadcast company. If there is a problem in the record industry, sever all your ties. And I was fired and went through a very rough year, painful separation, until we were all vindicated. And I'm proud when the documentary shows that check for a million dollars that I got from CBS and Columbia Records as I was starting a brand new record company, Arista. So it goes into all that because part of life, let me say, is being resilient. Part of life is to overcome career problems, traumas, and we started, and the reason I go into it is to correct any Pollyanna idea that life just goes up, up, up. It doesn't. And you've got to be ready emotionally, professionally, to keep your perspective clearly. And I was hungry, having been a number one label, to be that again. And here I was starting from scratch. And Columbia Pictures was backing me and putting up the money. Plus, they had a previous record company. This is always written wrongly. I had nothing to do with Bell Records. I started a brand new company, named it Arista Records from scratch. But I did have the ability to go through that previous label and sign any artist that I wanted to continue with to be the base and the first artist on Arista. And I chose two after going through up and down the artist roster, Barry Manilow, who had one album out that did not sold anything, and Melissa Manchester, who had one album out, and she too had not sold anything. The reason I go into it is that if I had to wait to be a competitive to the majors and only sign the same rock artists or the new kind of rock artists, because by this time it was new wave. So of course I kept my rock roots. I had A&R people join me who kept of that, and we did sign Patti Smith and the Outlaws and attracted the Kinks and the Grateful Dead, which was one of the most wonderful things. It's a brand new company uh, that the Grateful Dead, based upon what I had done at Columbia, came with us at the beginning of Arista. But if we were going to challenge Columbia or Capital, or RCA, or by this time, the incredibly successful Warner Brothers label that Mo Austin and Joe Smith and Atlantic, if we were going to challenge them, I couldn't do it from the volume provided by rock artists. It was still part of my DNA, but I had to educate my ear. Can I do with songs? what I did with self-contained artists. And do I know a hit song apart from knowing a hit artist? And these same artists, so that the first record released on Ariston was a song 
that I found that we renamed from Brandy to Mandy, gave to Barry Manilow, that went straight to number one. You start a label, your first record goes to number one, especially with the spotlight. After the payola investigation, can I do from scratch what I did at Columbia? And so it was, along with finding unique artists, rock artists, if you will, progressive artists, but it was mainly that song, the repertoire, A&R, artists, repertoire. It was finding, in the case of Barry, Barry gave me two songs on every subsequent album. That was my quota, because he wrote, and he was a good writer, very good writer. We supplemented his hits with trying to get the feeling again, and Weekend in New England, and I write the songs, and Can't Smile Without You, and looks like we made it. And that created a multi-multi-platinum artist. The same with Melissa, who wrote Midnight Blue and Come In From The Rain. And we gave it Don't Cry Out Loud. And you should hear she, they talk, she talks about you. And ultimately, when I had so many songs backed up for Barry, because we became the darling of the music publishers, I said, well, I can't sign another male. And that's when I looked around and I said, who's not recording today? Who could do some of these great songs coming in from music publishers? And it was Dionne Warwick. And then with I'll Never Love This Way Again and Deja Vu, we went double platinum. She won both the female pop and the female R&B Grammy. And that attracted Aretha, and of course, that in turn attracted Whitney Houston. I want to back up for a second, because as an A&R person, I know how challenging it is firsthand to try to get an artist who believes they're a songwriter to cut an outside song. So Barry Manilow was not only a songwriter, but is a successful songwriter. And with the success of Mandy, when you came to your agreement that you would get two songs per album and he would be able to write the rest, I can't imagine the chutzpah, as they say, of taking a song called I Write the Songs to a songwriter and telling him that he needs to cut it. That could not have been an easy conversation. You know, in that instance... Clearly, it was not at all an easy conversation. And, you know, just yesterday, Pete, 
I listened to an interview that Jimmy Jam did with Barry Manilow last week, okay? And he reminisced, if you will, that we would have battles. In the case of our Write the Songs, that was the only case that erupted where he didn't speak to me for four months. But to Barry's credit, he said, look, I've had hits. Every one of those two songs on those first several albums became a huge hit for him. So he's saying, look, he's hearing something that I'm not hearing. I'm primarily a songwriter. And he made a decision in each case, because he said in every single case, he came to me, and this was last week, with demos that were scratchy, barely listenable to. I could never hear why he was thinking that this could be, if arranged differently, a hit record. But rather than challenge him, and let me add parenthetically, others did challenge, concentrated on their own writing, and they could not come up with the hits to sustain a career. All these years later, Barry Manilow is still a headliner, and a combination of what he wrote and all the hits that we gave him that he brilliantly arranged so that he, bottom line, was very practical. And he said, in the case of I Write the Songs, in the case of Can't Smile Without You, he said there, it took me two to three months to finally come up with the arrangement, because Barry did come up with the arrangements by himself. And he said, you know, I then think, oh, oh, I got it. And we would go in the studio. I write the songs that make the whole world sing. I write the songs of love and special things. I write the songs that make the young girls cry. So, yeah, in the case of artists who didn't write, it's always welcome. That's what they were there. Dion grew up on Bert Packrack and David. She, obviously, you know, with Heartbreaker, with that's what Friends of Four, uh, you know, we really had, had wonderful years together. And it was that ability that led Aretha to call me and cook dinner for me, just Aretha and me, as to whether we could collaborate together, whether I could help, because post-Jerry Wexler at Atlanta, she did two to three albums that were not successful, so that Aretha was approaching 40 years old. And to me, from the minute I rang the bell in her home in L.A., from the minute that I was there waiting for her, as she personally did open that door. This was someone who will be in the history books forever. And what she had done before me, 
you know, is still among the greatest stories in the history of the music industry. So I did take up that challenge. I did say there's nobody who sings like you do. And I had no expectation. Radio had changed. So it's not that I had an expectation. I could come up with respect. I could come up with natural woman think, no, no, no. Can this woman into her 40s, 50s, 60s continue to have hit records? So the fact that whether it was Freeway of Love, whether it was the George Michael duet, whether it was Sisters are Doing It for Themselves or an R&B number one records, Jump to It, Get It Right, we were able to have hit records for decades. She was able to still win Grammy Awards and she was to her last day the Queen of Soul. Amazing. Clive, how do you explain your longevity? Most A&R people don't have a 50-plus year career with such a consistent output of contemporary hits. How do you keep your ears current? Do you still like listening to the music that is out now as much as you did 10, 20, 30, 50 years ago? You got to make sure you don't go over the hill. You got to make sure that so many people in previous years of their career, they become married to a certain kind of sound, song, music, don't update it, don't try to keep current. It's vital to do so, or you do become over the hill, okay? And so it's vital that you keep listening because music does keep changing. And what was a hit 10 years, I learned that from the minute I was made president of Columbia. I was a lawyer. I had no expectation. God had Lieberson who appointed me as head of Columbia. But I learned early that those that were successful in A&R then, with Andy Williams, with Tony Bennett, and the kind of artist roster, they were not going to come up with artists out of Monterey. And so you know clearly what they do and what they do successfully. They hone that talent. But I never was a boutique label, never wanted to be a boutique label, became head of a company that was preeminent in classical music, Broadway shows, and middle-of-the-road music. Just beginning with Simon and Garfunkel, who had not made a record yet but was signed by Tom Wilson. And there was Dylan, who was really writing hit songs for the birds, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and did not give really an individual artist, verse forth. And so if you're doing Tony Bennett and you're having big hits with him or Andy Williams, you're not at all interested. 
the great Mitch Miller, and he was a great A&R man, uh, with all those artists dating back to Johnny Mathis, etc., thought that rock was ephemeral, would never last. So if you're going to have multiple entries into rock, R&B, pop, and the like, you've got to be open to that and study it. And you got to have a great work ethic for me to keep my scholarships. I've always worked hard. I'm forever grateful to the work ethic coming out of the Brooklyn public school system. And so hours never meant anything to me. I hired those that felt the same way. I'm not a nine-to-fiver. I don't like to be surrounded by nine-to-fivers. I like those you can call on Saturday. I'm a great believer in family, having been orphaned with early deaths of my parents and my sister, who was seven years older than me, took me in when I was still just beginning at college. So family is vital. I'm not remotely suggesting no personal life, no curiosity for travel. I'd love to travel, love going everywhere around the world. But the work ethic and surrounding yourself with people that love music are not clock watchers. It's what it takes, Pete. Let's shift a little bit, Clive, and talk about your pre-Grammy party, which has become a thing of legend. How did that start? What goes into putting together what everyone in our industry considers to be the event of the year? How do you do that every year? Well, it began when I started Arista. Barry Manilow, that first recommend, he went to number one and was nominated for two Grammys. And... Barry looked at me and he said, look, every label has their party the night of the Grammys. What are we going to do? Where where are you going to have your party? I said, look, Barry, we just began. We're a brand new company. So I said, let me think about it. And I arranged for a party the day before the Grammys. And everybody came, Elton. Stevie Wonder, John Denver, all the top executives. And I knew that I was on to something special, that I would have a party the night before the Grammy. And that's how it began. In the last 10, 11, 12 years, I partnered with the Recording Academy, and I reached out not just the record industry, although I'm so thrilled that the heads of every label, your music group, whoever was, is, they all come. So it's a unique opportunity. And then history will show. You'll remember, Pete, when Supernatural was ready to come out. You remember how within certain areas of our label, that it was called Davis's Folly, that here I was being sentimental, signing an artist who would not add a hit for 25 years, doesn't do vocals. How in the world would we break Santana? It seemed impossible. We knew we had smooth, 
and we had Maria Maria. Everybody in that room, there were the heads of every independent promotion. There was alternative or roots or pioneering for iHeartRadio, MTV, VH1. Everybody was there. And Santana Band and Rob Thomas did smooth. Santana with White Club and Product GMB did Maria Maria. They electrified that audience to major standing ovation and word spread, oh my God, wait till you hear what is in the Supernatural album. Same with Alicia. Yes, I wrote a letter to Oprah to get her on Oprah, but I began the tradition of breast new artist. And I said to Alicia, I've got good news and I've got bad news. She said, what? I said, you know, we're having difficulty with Fall and the first single. It's in between R&B and pop. I said, look, I'm going to put you on and create a category that we at least have not only established stars at the having had Whitney and Aretha and everybody on years past, I said, the good news is I'm going to ask you to do two songs at my Grammy party in front of the worldwide record business. She says, well, what's the bad news? I said, the bad news is that for my party, I've got to play host and I've got to do what's right for the evening so that people will never forget the show that they're singing. And a label mate, Angie Stone, is going to be singing before you. And in one of her big records of the two she's performing, it samples Neither One of Us, the great Gladys Knight, incomparable star. So I'm inviting Gladys to come up and sing with Angie, which is what I do. I'm putting together duets that people will never see anywhere. Alicia Keys later in life with Aretha Franklin, Lou Reed with Rod Stewart and Slash. So I said, Gladys is going to come up and do with Angie neither one of us. And I can't let Gladys leave the stage without doing Midnight Train to Georgia. And to me as a host, going from one of the greatest artists of all time, singing one of the great hits and songs of all time, 
and then looking to you as a brand new artist. So the bad news is, is you're going to have to follow Gladys Knight doing the night train to Georgia. And Alicia, she said, all I could do is my best. So yes, you'll see established stars. You'll see brand new artists. We did it for Maroon 5 every year to this day, even as music changes. Cynthia Revo played it last year doing a tribute to Janet Jackson. Um, when we came to New York, I didn't just say that the music, you've got to play or because hip hop was dominating the whole evening beat. No, I mean, we were honoring Jay-Z and Beyonce, okay, or Jay-Z rather, alone. And I said, for the party, we've got to do more than just current records. And we've got to play the best music anywhere. And so it's germane to today uh, because before any record came out on Atlantic, we put on Ben Platt and showed the diversity of music, really. So the evening is an evening of just great music, a lot of which you'll never seen before, heralding new artists that can captivate an audience, not doing new music ever, but showing great talent. And from the audience then, you know, it was replete. Whitney might have played it seven, eight times and being joined by Natalie Cole doing songs they never had recorded. It's been very unique. So normally, Clive, at this point, we would take live questions from our staff. But since we are doing this virtually, we asked them to submit some questions for you ahead of time, starting with one from Ashley Kaiser, who works for Atlantic Records in L.A. And she is asking, is there any artist that you regret not signing? Well, let me tell you a story, because implicit in that is who could I have signed that I didn't sign? Because obviously... I have great admiration for so many artists that are unique that I never saw, so I can't regret. Let me tell you a story that's not in my book and it's not in the documentary. I auditioned John Cougar Mellencamp, and I did not sign him. And for years, when I was asked who I passed on, I did pass on Meatloaf. And I have no idea what songs uh, Jim Steinman played. It could have been some of them from Bat Out of Hell, which obviously was a huge success. And that album was great. But it's not that you're dealing with an artist who was there 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years later. In the case of John Mellencamp, he certainly continues to be an incredible all-time artist. Some years ago, the night before Jan Wenner, the founder of Rolling Stone magazine, was being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, he had about 50, 60 of us to a dinner at the restaurant Elaine's. And we were there at cocktails. I was having a drink with a group of artists 
and there was an announcement over a mic, wherever and with whomever you're, you're standing, sit down at that table and we're ready to serve dinner. As I said, there are about 60 of us. Now, that night, I was standing with Drew Springsteen, who was on my left, John Mellencamp, who sat down next to Bruce, Jackson Brown, who sat down next to Mellencamp, and Don Henley of the Eagles. And that was the table. And because Bruce was there and Jackson, somehow Bruce or someone said, did you audition all of us? I mean, at this table, this is such a coincidence. I said, well, I clearly never auditioned Don Henley. And uh, I said, Don and Glenn, and I became very friendly, just as social friends. I said, so Don became a friend. But I said, Jackson, I somehow remember you with David Geffen in my office, but I can't remember auditioning you. And he told his own story that I didn't because David was his manager and somehow we rescheduled it and he never auditioned for me. But it was Mellencamp I'm looking at and I say, John, you are clearly the most prominent artist that I didn't sign. And what's ironic is that Sitting between us is Bruce. And having been there with John Hammond to sign Bruce Springsteen at the beginning of his career, you seem to be, when you auditioned for me, too close to Bruce. And I didn't see the Jack and Diane. I didn't see what has made you an all-time great at that time. True story, word for word. Mellencamp says, Clive, let me take this burden from you and let me tell you what happened that you don't know. He said, I was in a cover band playing Las Vegas when David Bowie's manager saw us as a cover band and got me on the side after he saw me. And he said, if you leave your band and start writing, I will arrange for you to audition for a few of the most powerful music executives because you should not be doing cover material with a cover band you look too great, you sing too great. I don't know if you could write, but you've got to try it, and I'll be there for you. And he said, I am instantly resigned. I went back home. I started writing, and he said, Clive, maybe three months later, four months later, I get a call. I've arranged for an audition for you. And who was that for? It was you. He said, I auditioned for you when the biggest artist influencer of my life was Bruce. And there's no doubt 
I had not found my voice at that time. And so let me take away this story, but to provide a new one in that I was very close to who Bruce was and had not assumed my own chops. So anyway, there's a brand new story. I still regret never having worked with John, but I'm greatly relieved that my faux pas was not as great as it had assumed in my mind over the years. Well, it's great that he was able to rectify that for you. The uh, couple of more questions before we wrap it up, Clive. Chris Costello, who's actually an alumni of Arista Records and who is running production for um, our event today, um, she'd like to know, in the spirit of passing knowledge to the next generation, what is the best career advice you ever received that still rings true today? Look, the best advice in general, that I ever got in my life was from my mother. Um, I was always a reader when I was a kid. I was always good in academics, okay? That's what got me my scholarships throughout every school. And she recognized when I was 10, 11, 12, that I would love to read. And we lived in Brooklyn in a melting pot, all races, religions. And she said, you know, it's great that you're an A student. It's great that you love to read, continue doing it. But I don't want you to be an ivory tower person. I don't want you to exist in a vacuum. You got to get out there. You got to get friends with your peers, play street, touch football, Baseball, stickball, stickball, it was called then on the streets of Brooklyn. And you've always got to be people savvy. You've got to learn. You don't get common sense from books. You've got to get out there and mix and learn people and deal with real people, not just books. So that's general advice. It doesn't answer Chris's question. But for me, always being prepared. The best career advice I could give, I'm very, first of all, my mind, I have a res healthy respect for failure. So to this day, I, as I always used to tell, and still do to some, they don't play your records because you signed Joplin and Springsteen. It's got to be there when you play it. So you've got to keep your ears current. You've got to do when you've got to listen to everything. You've got to be aware when music changes. What is a hit now? Is What was a hit then could not be a hit now. And so work ethic, work ethic, loving what you do. And I think believing in yourself. Obviously, I'm fortunate that only twice in my career did I start from scratch and believing when I was head of Columbia Records, it was never money. I never made banking deals, ever, ever. I never bought an artist, you know, based on the money of a big company to get market share as a label. I never bought another label. I started from scratch. At Arista, when I decided that I, it was time to go to country music, I started from scratch. I picked the best executives 
to lead us was there with Alan Jackson, Brooks and Dunn, knowing when R&B was changing, financing LaFace and Bad Boy. So everything was done from scratch. It was not just buying talent, but banking deals or buying companies for market share. Work ethic, keeping your ears current whenever adversity confronts you. Be resilient. As I said earlier, no one's life goes up, up, up. Learn to get up and arrange for that comeback. So that's my general specific career advice. Thank you. That's excellent. We're going to close it out with one final question, Clive. This is from Melissa Zalvidar, who, uh, Zaldivar, rather, who works for us in Los Angeles and Human Resources. And she'd like to know, of all of your accolades, what are you most proud of accomplishing? I'm happy to repeat what I said earlier today. Two things. I'm so proud that the 18 top executives from A&R Marketing Promotion left their jobs at Arista to come work for me as we started a brand new label. Um, yes, I keep the bar up. Yes, I'm challenging to make sure that everybody as part of the team is there for the right reason. But no matter what the challenges are, that these people believed in our future and left their comfortable, successful label to start with me at the beginning. Um, equally, I think that to see artists that I signed still headlining, still decades after, that is your greatest accomplishment for those of you in any area where you didn't just sign one hit, two hit, three hit wonders, that you sign stars for a lifetime career, or if you signed the artists after their career had paused, it's so easy to be Johnny come lately and only look at what's there and saying, oh, Dion is over the hill, or Reef is over the hill, or Santana's over the hill, or the others, that they could come back and show that they're timeless and inspire all of us how long a career can last. These artists, uh, their careers have lasted long. It's very proud of them. Clive, just on a personal note, thank you for everything you've done for me in my career. Without you, I definitely would not be here at Atlantic. So thank you for that. And I would definitely reiterate to everyone who is watching this, Clive's book, The Soundtrack of My Life, for anyone who makes a career in music, for anyone who loves music, is a must read, as is the documentary film, Clive Davis, The Soundtrack of Our Lives, which is currently on Netflix. Clive, thank you. Thank you. A huge thank you to our guest Clive Davis for joining us on Rock and Roll High School this week. 
Make sure to check out Clive's great autobiography, The Soundtrack of My Life, as well as the documentary based on the book, now streaming on Netflix. On a personal note, Clive has been my friend and mentor since I started working with him in 1997. I'm thrilled that he was able to join us and share some of his amazing stories which have changed the history of contemporary music. I'm Pete Gambart. We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganbard, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Willie Fastino, Catherine Hoppy, Kayla Flores, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on high school.